Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the July edition of the Vice Magazine podcast, your definitive monthly guide to enlightening information. I'm Ellis Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vice Magazine. Since we don't put out an issue in July, this month we're revisiting some of our favorite stories from Tinder hacks to psychedelic honey. Here's our table of contents. High up in the Himalayas, there's a special kind of honey that'll make you hallucinate. So of course, Abdullah Saeed, Vice's resident weed connoisseur, had to try it. Here he is discussing his experience with this mystical treat. Those makeshift masks come off and everybody's hand is out and everybody's like mouth is open and they're dripping honey into each other's mouths and it's a, it's a little party up there. Photographer Naomi Harris describes her 100-day journey across the U.S., documenting the surprising stories of American voters. In some ways, I consider myself sort of naive, and that's why I do what I do, like sleep in parking lots and like Walmarts and stuff like that. But I also believe, for the most part, most people are innately good. Computer programmers like Sharif Cornaldi are hacking their way through dating apps. Here's Sharif on why. One thing that you find out is that most people have pretty strong biases about who they're attracted to, stated or not. I discovered when I started to get multiple, multiple dates a week from just running this random script that I just started filtering out bunches and bunches of of women. How far would you go to get high? Inspired by a 2016 story from David Caprara detailing a quest for hallucinogenic honey in Nepal, Abdullah Saeed, host of the Bong Appetit series on Viceland, went deep into the Himalayas to try out the honey himself. My name's Abdullah Saeed, and in 2016, I hosted the Vice.com documentary, Mad Honey. It was one of the most transformative experiences of my life, I gotta say. An insane adventure from beginning to end. Chloe Campion sent me an email and mentioned in brief that there's a tribe of people out in Nepal in the foothills of the Himalayas who harvest a psychedelic honey made by the world's largest honeybee from these very high cliffs, and that they hunt that stuff, and that Vice was gonna do a piece about it. I was like, I gotta go do this story, you know? It's just so compelling. Another aspect of this that really interested me is that I grew up in Thailand around a lot of Nepali people, and I know that despite Hindi not actually being a national language of Nepal, because of the media influence from India and Bollywood, most everyone speaks some amount of Hindi. I haven't been to South Asia since 1997, since I was a little kid, basically, like 12 or 13. So 
that was one thing that I really wanted to get out of it was to be in a place where for the first time essentially in my life, I looked like everyone else and could speak the language. So then we set off. You know, of course, when we arrived in Kathmandu, immediately at the airport, they wouldn't let us bring our drone in. We knew that there would be some resistance to letting us use the drone, but immediately I found myself using my Hindi. Here I was, immediately right off the plane, flexing my Hindi and, you know, like trying to make shit happen with it. And it would come in handy at a number of times throughout the rest of the trip. We start our trek up to Talochipla, which is the Gurung town where they do this hunt. And they're waiting for us there. They're expecting us. We're going to join them for three days on the mountain while they do the honey hunt. So right out of Kathmandu, it's a seven hour drive up and absolute chaos mountain traffic. It's a two lane road. There's people walking in the middle of the street. There's trucks, there's cars. They're passing each other around turns. Literally every second on that mountain, you feel like you're gonna either crash into the side of it, crash to another car, kill a guy, or go over the cliff and kill a guy, right? You know, after a little while, you start to notice this kind of understanding or almost this like language. And this is a very congested place, a very poor place with bad infrastructure. So the people have to compensate for that by being kind of chill and mellow and, you know, not getting in each other's ways. Seeing them on the road like that, I think, spoke volumes about how Nepali people are in terms of they don't have much. It's, it's a poor country, and in the last few years, they've faced a number of disasters. They've had a pretty turbulent history. And yet, regardless of how it looks, there's actually a lot of chill in the whole vibe. And finally, after an arduous journey, we arrived at a little guest house. Slept at that guest house for the night. Next morning, got up. About 15 porters met up with us and helped us carry these crap tons of gear all the way to the village. As we're climbing the mountain, I mean, this is like your classic gorgeous Himalayan landscape. Layers upon layers of mountains in the distance just descending into the clouds. Really kind of a uh, awe-inspiring view. We get to the village and it is the full on mountain town hospitality. There's a welcome wagon. They're putting flower garlands on us and they're painting our foreheads with, you know, the little red bindi. And they're so excited. The chief of the village sits us down in the one concrete structure in this entire mountain village. Everything else is just sort of made with uh, rocks and wood. And this is like, you know, looks like they've all pooled their money together to make a little community center. And they sit us in there and the chief gets up and there's many speeches and there's Ruxi, which is this type of alcohol made from millet, which they uh, drink up there. And, uh, you know, we're, we're drinking the Ruxi. The guy gets up. He's like, I'm so honored. You know, we're getting this translated because it's in Guru. He says, we're so honored to have our friends from BBC here. So, of course, like, you know, me and Chloe and Igor and Billy and David Caprera, who is this photographer and local journalist who was with us, all kind of look at each other and say, okay, these guys think we're from the BBC. Uh, but, of course, you know, they think every news organization is the BBC, essentially. Like, anybody who comes through with cameras, I mean, nine times out of ten in the past 50 years, it's been the BBC. So this time around, it's probably the BBC, too. And David explained it to us. And we were kind of like, 
okay, whatever. We're just going to roll with this. Whatever, you know, whatever happens, happens. We're obviously like very special guests here. Finally, we get out of there. We think, wow, that took a long time. We had no idea what was about to come next. So we get up to our camp area, set up our tents. They've sort of got a little corrugated steel shed for us. And there's an outhouse there. So there's a corrugated steel outhouse. Now, I would have many fun mornings trying to poop in this thing. And there's leeches and there's all kinds of crazy manner of bugs just crawling around you while you're squatting there on the floor because of course this is Nepal and there's only squat toilets and I just remember at those moments being like come on body just poop enough so that you don't even have to poop for the rest of this entire time but of course that wasn't going to happen because we were up there for several days that was definitely one of the gnarliest toilets I've ever used Once you get up to that actual Honey Hunters base camp, now you're sort of seeing all that indigenous cultural tradition in practice, right? So you see a bunch of men and women all wearing these kind of straw woven baskets over their heads and over those baskets they have gauze. Now they all have sort of different hand woven baskets and they all have different colored gauze over them and they're all kind of wearing full sleeves and their hands are all stung with bees and all swollen up, right? So it looks like this bizarre alien scene where there's like a bunch of these kind of wild looking creatures with these different colored heads and you know, they look like these kind of terrifying masks. I mean, really, really cool though. An amazing scene, like you look over and there's a bunch of people wearing these makeshift bee masks sitting there carving arrow-headed slats of wood. At another spot, they're taking strips of bamboo and weaving them into a very thick rope, right? And they're making quick work of it. They're all like grinding really hard and it's pretty organized, you know? Like everybody's sort of in their section doing their own thing and there's a bunch of elders sitting around chowing down on some frog legs that they just made a soup out of. So I sat down, I ate some frog with them. There was this intuitive approach that they had to sort of being like, oh, well, we see that, you know, this year the honey will be good because the bees have been very angry or they see the prevalence of certain plants or certain flowers or certain behaviors in the bees. And from that, they conjecture as to how good that harvest is going to be that year. And they kind of seem to be speaking in those vagaries that old heads from remote parts of anywhere in the world speak in. There's kind of like a great beauty to that. We're getting covered in bees. The more you talk, the louder you talk, the more bees you get on you. They love the color black. So I remember our translator, June, was in a uh, black jacket that was just covered in like bee jizz. You know, there was like, I don't know how many bees gave their lives to try and sting June, but his jacket was just covered in like those little bee boogers, you know? Anyhow. They're so used to this. It's like, it seems like so natural to them to be sitting around and doing everything they're doing. We start to see that those slats that they were carving before were kind of like, you know, a foot and a half wide piece of wood with arrowheads carved into each end. And those, they would jam into that braided bamboo slit rope that they had made. So they would sort of jam it into the curves on that thing on either side. So they had two bamboo ropes and in between them, you had these wooden slats going. And that's how they constructed this ladder. So the ladder is the integral piece of equipment for honey hunting because that's what our hunter is gonna climb down on when he does the death-defying honey get. 
We went up there for three days. From the very beginning, I put on one of the cheaper bee suits, which is what we had available on the first day. And the first day I was wearing clothes underneath it and I just sweated out. Oh my God, I don't know how I didn't fall out completely. And then of course, for continuity, I had to wear the same bee suit for the next two days that we were up there. So I was dying, but I always say it. I always, always say it anywhere I go, no matter where in the world, whether I'm going to like, you know, some like Cleveland, Ohio, or you're going to like the middle of freaking nowhere in Siberia, bring a pair of mesh shorts. Mesh shorts will save your fucking life. Harvesting the honey is a group effort and it's a fair amount of work. For those days that the gurung are up on the cliff, they're really going hard. From sun up to sundown, they're putting together the materials. Then there's the nerve wracking task of actually going over the cliff. It takes a while, they get stung by a lot of bees. It's a difficult process. Now these are people of the mountains, of that region. So, you know, they do pretty well uh, hanging out on that cliff all day, but it still takes a lot out of them clearly. And they celebrate the fact that they're done with it when they get down because it's it can get kind of brutal up on that cliff all day. Finally, when they're done, there is a ton of honey. So basically they take these big one liter sort of long water bottles and they fill those up and they filtered the honey through these sort of straw woven mats that act as filters and they kind of strain out all the wax and chunks of waxy material and all the dead bees and all that crap Uh, and they separate out the honey that's already sort of been consumed by the baby bees and they toss that stuff out And, I mean, they cannot wait to take a taste. I mean, you know, that's one of the benefits of sitting on top of the cliff is that you get to taste the honey right when it comes off the mountain. And immediately, those makeshift masks come off and everybody's hand is out and everybody's, like, mouth is open and they're dripping honey into each other's mouths and it's a a little party up there. And I can tell you that I got pretty lit off of it. But it was really hard to compare... To any other drug experience I've had. It's hard to describe it as psychedelic. It's certainly not a stimulant, though there are aspects of it that do get you a little bit hype and it, it has that feeling. But it's a it's a completely different category unto itself. And if you ask the gurung, their descriptions of the psychoactive effects of the honey vary quite a bit. Some people say it gives you sexual potency. Some people say it puts you to sleep. Some people say that the difference between a one tablespoon dose and a two tablespoon dose is enough to take you from just chilling to just on your ass and like throwing up. And when they bring the stuff down, it's a huge celebration. I mean, the honey itself is treated like gold. You know, that's their harvest. So they're carefully pouring it from one thing to another. They're sharing it. And even our guys down in our base camp where our tents are, keep asking us can you bring us just a little bit of honey if you could give me just a little bit of honey i need some for my grandmother i need some for my wife or whatever they all obviously prize the honey we descend back down to the village right and we have no idea what's about to happen but the village is about to throw us the most epic going away party ever ever i just moved out of new york right after seven years of living there and really didn't have much of a going away party by way of like, thanks for coming, like, see you later. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
And yet, when we left Dalo Chipla, it was like we all just graduated from the local high school. We're just like going nuts because we were going to leave the village forever, you know? And we've been there for like whatever, a week. The Gurung are a simple people. They live up in this mountain town and it's pretty uneventful. There's been an influx of technology. A lot of the people from this village and many around and the entire region all over Nepal go and work temporarily in places like Dubai and Doha under terrible conditions. And that's sort of what brings money into these places. And once a year, twice a year, they have access to this stuff that everybody in Nepal wants. And in fact, even beyond, in many, many cases, just like a lot of other traded substances in this world, they're said to give you sexual potency. The boners or the lack of boners literally drive the entire world, you realize. Like, it factors into almost everything in some way, including this story. This is the one time that they're special. They have something valuable. They're rich, you know, in the context of the larger world and not just within their small insular community. And that's one thing that I hope that we manage to give the Gurung in the Mad Honey piece is a shout out for being awesome and for being out there and doing their thing and for being hospitable, beautiful people and for keeping their traditions alive. Photographer Naomi Harris was among the many stunned spectators after the 2016 presidential election. How had the polls and the media gotten it so wrong? Eager to find out, she set out on a road trip with her dog Maggie during Trump's first 100 days in office to meet the voters from single mothers to rodeo clowns. This story originally appeared in the June issue of Vice magazine, but we wanted to catch up with Naomi to hear more about her experience. Naomi Harris is the artist behind our June Salute Your Shorts cover. And in this cover, you see a man wearing nothing but sneakers, a sun hat, and G-string. This cover actually is sort of unexpected because he voted for Hillary. Well, and I think also at the end of the day, just seeing this guy with an American flag, it's kind of not to belittle Richard, what the fellow who's in the picture, but it's just this idea of like the current state of America, because he is in a bit of disarray. If you look around yeah. in the photo, it's like burnt out camper trailers and garbage strewn around this beautiful location in Arizona. And then the flag is just proudly waving, waving but he's property. in a G-street. <laughs> so yeah, the story behind the cover, sorry. I had just spent the night before at a woman's home who I had met in Pie Town, New Mexico. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with this part of the country. It's very sparsely inhabited. And so you can drive for really long periods of time before you see a town or a house or whatever. And I had just left the woman's place from the night before. And I was driving through this beautiful part of this highway that connected New Mexico to Arizona. And as I drove out of the mountain, or it's more like a hill, I guess, I was just driving and I saw this flag. And then I saw this man way off in the distance kind of rummaging through stuff wearing nothing but a g-string and I knew it was an older gentleman but I was just kind of like what what did I see so I of course pulled a u-turn and pulled into his driveway which was locked there was a gate 
and I started honking. He didn't come out right away because I honked. And when he came out, he was wearing yellow shorts. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to come out, I guess, in his G-string and scare me right away. And um, we just started talking. And I asked him if I could photograph him after, you know, talking for a while. And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. And he was a Vietnam War vet. And first I photographed him in his yellow shorts because that's what he was wearing. And then I actually was like, well, when I saw you driving by, I did see you in the G-string. Do you mind me photographing you like that? And it's like, no, I wasn't sure if you wanted me to put more clothes on. And yeah. <laughs> you, That's what is so crazy to me, how you find your subjects and you get them to pose for you. I just can't imagine driving up to somebody's property in the middle of nowhere and like going out on a limb after seeing something as crazy as a old guy in a bucket hat and a g-string <laughs> like how do you follow your instincts like that and do you ever get afraid when you're approaching somebody out of nowhere like um, on? there were times on this project that i did follow my gut and i did not stick around like i was mm-hmm. in harlan kentucky for example and once the the sort of backbone of coal in america but it now is one of the hotbeds of the opioid mm-hmm. epidemic in America. And I actually did see a group of people, like I'd been walking around with Maggie, and these people started talking to me. They were on a stoop outside, like an abandoned building. And I mean, it's not that they're abandoned. They're just, there's no businesses, so they're for rent. But there's no money in these towns, so that the businesses sit empty. And there was a group of people, maybe about five or six of them, and clearly meth heads Mm -hmm. or something like they were definitely not sober and part of me was like huh it would be really interesting to start talking to them like we were talking a little bit and talking about Maggie whatever and I thought about photo and they had seen me photograph someone else actually earlier that day so they saw me out with gear and I had put it back in the car and now I was just walking Maggie and something just said you know the picture might be good, and you might get a good story, but they also might rob you. So yeah. just get back to your car and keep going. Yeah, I try to listen to my gut as much as possible. Thank the Lord and knock on wood, I haven't actually had any bad situations from any of my subjects. Or I guess in some ways I consider myself sort of naive, and that's why I do what I do, like sleep in parking lots and like Walmarts and stuff like that. But I also believe for the most part, most people are innately good and don't want to cause you harm. And I think when they hear what your story is, you know, me just driving around as a photographer with my dog, they don't want to cause you harm. You've done an extensive amount of road trip for finding subjects. And I wonder like how you came upon that sort of format of finding people and why do you use the road trip as a way to source subjects? I guess there's more than one reason. Initially, I did a road trip across Canada. I had never seen my country and the best way to see Canada is by the car. You know, it's just such a big country, you can't fly in to everywhere. And um, I had received a Canada Council grant back in 2011, and I bought my Honda Element on eBay. You know, just driving across the country. I've always liked driving. I've always enjoyed driving, but I really fell in love with it on that project. And it's also just this idea you don't know. Like, I I would have some sense of where I was going, like, (laughs) you know, perhaps there was an event happening, like Spock Days in Vulcan, Alberta. And I know that's on June 15th, so I have to get there. But otherwise, I like the freedom of not having a schedule and just sort of stumbling upon people. And it really forces you to 
sort of have to be on hyper attention and and sensitive to what's around you and who's around you. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I really do like the road trip. So I did the road trip across Canada. And then a couple of years later, I decided to become an American citizen. So I applied out of a friend's house in New York. I said it was where I lived. And then I just hit the road. And I was on that trip for, I think, like eight months off and on. I did crash at some people's homes for extended periods of time. I stayed in LA for a month at one point. But I was on the road probably a total of total of six months. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started. And that's when I built the sleep platform in my car. So essentially, I, I, as the Honda element, you can take the back seats out, take the back seats out. I had this platform built where all my stuff goes underneath. And I had like, you know, a little feather bed, an air mattress. And when I pull into a Walmart parking lot, or if there's no Walmarts, I'll use a church parking lot because Jesus loves me. <laughs> um, because it's a car and it's not like a true camper or Winnebago or whatever, I often, like for example, when I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Walmart there was really rough. I actually, yeah. I went to go to it and I pull into this parking lot and there's a strip club called The Landing Strip ahead of me. Oh my God. These people walking by that looked like zombies because I think they were on drugs. A cat and her kittens walked by the other day. It was just like this scenario of weirdness. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not staying at this Walmart. And I went to a very affluent looking neighborhood and I just pulled into the, you know, in this, because I'm usually out before the morning and only one time has someone knocked on my window. And I think they were knocking on my window because I was in like Iowa or something and they saw Ontario plates at that point. So they were just curious as to who I was. But it just makes it easier. Like I go as long as five days without showering. That's my cutoff. Like, you know, (laughs) and then that's when I I have to get either to a friend's house or a motel or a campground or something, at least just to shower. Yeah. Um, But it's just I save so much money because I'm only sleeping. Yeah. And then occasionally if I have to get on the Wi-Fi and like do some real editing or something, I'll stay in a motel. But I just find it more of a pain. And often, I find my car is more comfortable than the hotel room. A creepy motel. <laughs> well, like, either the bed's more comfortable, but on top of that, like, the noise factor. Like, what? who's in the room next to you coughing or listening to their TV really loud or having sex sometimes, which I really don't want to hear, <laughs> or the train across the street or whatever. Like, in my, if I'm in my car and it's not good, I just pull up and go somewhere else. Would you say that this trip was kind of one of your shorter Yeah, I mean, only being 100 days, it was really short, although it didn't feel that way at the beginning. Yeah. (laughs) But it was also a very different trip for me because it was much more intense. Like on my other trips, I don't have a schedule. Not that I had a schedule on this trip, other than the fact that day 100 was April 29th, and I wanted to be back in Niagara Falls to cross over to go to Canada. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to hit certain areas of the country I really wanted to do the border. You had to do that when the weather wasn't too hot yet. That's a big problem also. Like United States, depending on the time of year, if you're going to live in your car, you really have to terrible. Yeah, you have to yeah. time it. And so the the great thing is it's cooler in the winter, but the days are shorter. You know, there's all sorts of things happening. I mean, how do you feel now that it's done and now that it is post 100 days, post 4th of July? How do you think your subjects are kind of reacting this time period out from him being in office. So day 100, I cross over, and I've been in, actually in Canada since then. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching it from a distance, yeah. if you will. So, which I think is in a way 
good for me. I will be curious to hear when I go back to Los Angeles and I talk to my friends and ask them how it's been being in the U.S. because it, it has been a little different. And and even like being on the road trip, I was in the States, but I wasn't among my friends. Yeah. So it's a very different feeling just being with people and talking to people as much as they're comfortable to share with me because some people some people were very open and other people you could tell they didn't you know and I tended to leave those people alone but I think definitely if some of the people I've photographed because it was also different the ones I photographed at the beginning were most of them were like still if they were Trump supporters most of them were really gung-ho Trump supporters yeah Although I did meet a fellow, I did not get to photograph him because he was at work, but I met a fellow like on day three who he was like, after watching that inauguration, I'm already having regrets. Doubts. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm sure, and and like the fellow I photographed on day 100 or, or like, the yeah, it was actually day 99 as I was going back to Canada. Um, he was known as the Trump troubadour. And uh, he would go around to the various rallies and he played a guitar and It was such a sad story. His son had died of a heroin overdose actually in the house, and he had died a few years earlier. And he still would sleep on the floor next to his son's ashes. I mean, the man has not moved on with his life, and he's in a lot of pain. And he really fell into the Trump camp because he met him at one of the very early rallies during the primaries, and Trump asked him a question, and he asked him, what are you going to do about heroin addiction and opioid addiction in America. And Trump basically was like, we're going to solve it. We're going to do great things. It's going to be big. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to end the war. There's going to be a war on opioids, and we're going to get everyone help. And he bought it hook, line, and sinker and gave up his job, essentially, and traveled around. And now the guy's, like, losing his house. No one's come to help him financially, even though he's really dedicated his life to Trump and getting yeah. Trump elected. And he's like... When I see him talking about building the wall and keeping the Muslims out with the Muslim ban and this, that, and the other, but not doing anything, what he promised me about health care reform and creating programs for drug addicts, well, then I was sold a bill of goods. Yeah. And so he early on saw that he was lied to. A lot of people voted based on beliefs, not facts. And if uh-huh. they did their homework, they would have seen that Trump was just telling them what they wanted to hear. And I don't fault them for that because at the same time, where was Hillary? Where was the DNC or the the Democratic? They they didn't run their campaign very well in the sense that Trump went out to Wisconsin. He went to Michigan. He went to these places that were historically blue. Mm -hmm. And Hillary and her camp just were like, we got it locked up. We don't have to go there. And that's where they made their mistake. People were like, no, you do have to come and talk to us. You have to convince us that everything's going to be okay. And that's what Trump did. He told them the bedtime story. Everything's going to be okay. Is he going to really do those things? It's to be determined. So, Yeah, and that's such a unique situation when shooting a project where you can't predict the news and how it's going to affect your subjects. And I feel like the amount of news happening from like the first day, two weeks after, oh god, could have really like influenced like those first who, two weeks. I my yeah. head was spinning. I was like, should I continue this project? Should I pack it up and go home? Is he going to make it? Is he? Yeah. And there were several That's times. Yeah, there were several had. times along the road that I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through to 100 days. Not because I didn't think I could shoot it or whatever, but it wasn't even that far in. Like when Mike Flynn 
resigned and then it looked like, you know, it was going to be curtains for Trump. I was like, well, wait, do I keep doing this? Yeah. And then, of course, he's Teflon. Everything bounces off him. And I really don't I think he's going to make it through. I wouldn't be surprised if he gets a second term, to be honest. You have to remember, so many people I talk to are not necessarily Trump supporters. They wanted to shake the system up. And it wasn't because they were like Bernie bros wanting to shake the system up. It wasn't like that. And that is where people are at. They don't believe the party. You know, I called the project first 100 days, but I could have called it easily the lesser of two evils. Yeah. The number of people who would just say, I couldn't vote for her. I couldn't vote for her. But had it been... Bernie, I would have voted for him. Yeah. And these weren't people who were Bernie supporters as I was. They were just people that believed his message and felt that it was time to shake the system up. And if it was not going to be Bernie to shake the system up, it's going to be Trump. Sure, I went out with kind of a preconceived notion for this project, but I tried to put my biases to the door or, you know, set them aside and let people speak and have their voice. And I hope that comes through in the project. I think it's interesting that photographers like yourself and another example, like Stacey Kranitz, who goes into coal country and focuses on these smaller areas that don't have their stories being told. I think that's really important. And I think it's more important now than ever. And I just... Yeah, I but guess you I... know what? They're not sexy, these stories. And, no. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, I don't think most media is interested in in this. And I think that's why a lot of people have been left behind. It's not, um, you know, we, we, we revere youth. We revere wealth. We don't want to see the dark side. People don't want to see the reality of what the majority of this country really is about. You, you leave the two coasts and go inland and it's completely different. Even with dating apps like Tinder and OkCupid, the dating scene can be tough. That's why some computer programmers are developing hacks to streamline the process. Sharif Coronaldi reveals what hackers such as himself are doing to help people find love in cyberspace. Tell me a little bit about Yay Dating. Yeah, so Yay Dating is a website. It's a bunch of tools that are descendants of tools that I came up with for getting dates when I was very lonely in grad school, getting a physics PhD in Berkeley, in a town I just moved to. And uh, now it's a website, and we have a few thousand people have used it and continue to use it. Some stop for a while, some come back. And uh, it helps people on OkCupid and Plenty of Fish, and there may be other dating sites later that it plugs into, but it helps you get dates, it helps you attract people to pay attention to you, and it helps you look for people that you want to go on dates with. How does it do that? The fundamental principle is basically it exploits that on online dating, there's kind of a pyramid of attention where I myself date women, so I'm talking about like for heterosexual dating, and I think it's important that there's a different dynamic that happens in queer spaces. But in general, for men that date women and women that date men, online, there's a pyramid of attention where all of the men are just staring at the same hundred or so women in like their profiles. And so they're inundated, inundated with messages. And then there's this enormous, vast kind of rest of the iceberg of just women that didn't photograph amazingly that day. And that happens kind of in a different sense with the men for women that date men. But 
it basically takes advantage of the fact that there's a huge untapped group of folks who you would want to go on a date with if you only pay them any attention. And so what you can do is basically by showing attention broadly to lots of different profiles, you can make people pay attention to you. It's pretty straightforward. Like if you just browse and use these sites, and what we've done is we've automated this process, but if you browse and use these sites frequently, more people will pay attention to you, and there's this network effect where more people pay attention to you, and you're getting more likes, whatever, or messages coming in. It's kind of like auto bar eyes. It's like bar eyes a little bit, where like you kind of automate that process of like, am I? Are they looking? Is she looking at me? What's going? On? Like kind of that little weird, awkward, but still kind of useful yeah. for meeting people space. And so you just automate that. Ah, okay. So you can give bar eyes to thousands of people in your <laughs> in your you know your area. You pay per blast. It's cheaper than the other online dating sites blast. It's like $2, I think, per blast. You get to try it for free, and then you get to use the eye for free for a month, and if it works for you, hooray. How did you get into this? Are you a computer programmer? Are you, yeah. like, what is your... Yeah. So my background, I'm a, I'm a computer programmer. I went to undergrad for that, for computer science, and was getting a PhD in physics at UC Berkeley, so in the Bay Area, and I just moved there. I didn't know anyone there, and I'm and you're just in. You're just like grading papers for physics grad school. So you're just in this room, like this kind of shitty '70s desks everywhere, and like chalkboards. You're just like, oh god. And so I just I was just going on dates. I was trying to go on dates, and I didn't know anybody. And so I was just kind of would just like kind of listlessly browse OkCupid and be like, oh, this sucks. I don't know, whatever. And so I tried to gather data, which is just kind of like a naive kind of scientist way of approaching it. Let me just gather the data of who's out there. And so I made a little script and I ran it. And this was like in the dead of winter. And I went to grade papers and I graded papers for like six hours or something. And I came back and I realized my script had just been going for those full six hours and it had just been gathering data, i.e. looking at people. And I had, I think... 20 or 30 messages in my message in my message box on OkCupid, which is unheard of for me, which is super rare. Like, oh my God, I, how did I get all these messages? How did I even get a message? And I had a bunch of people that like liked me or sent me things. And so it was a bunch of attention that had kind of just come from just this script. And basically what I had stumbled onto, and who knows who else has discovered this, but one thing that I discovered for myself was that principle that I talked about. It just like if you prime the pump a little bit, attention will come your way. Right. So if you show someone else a little bit of attention, they're more likely to pay a little bit of attention back to you. Right. And then everything will just <laughs> go from there. Yeah, I was kind of, right? Like, I should also mention that, like, it browsed on the order of maybe 3,500 profiles, maybe more. And of that, I think maybe 10, 15 women had written to me, which is still so many, right? For, like, a dude who's using OkCupid and just doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. That's amazing. I didn't actually make Yay Dating for like a year and a half after having that site. I ran it for myself for like a year. I just forgot about it. I had a, got a girlfriend and then stopped using it. And then I think a few friends of mine used it and had their own experiences on it. And then gradually a few of them were like, oh, you should make this a thing. The process was kind of interesting is that it just intensifies what is happening for you already naturally. So for like, giving an example... And by way of context, there's an amazing article that I guess a guy named Christian, I'm blanking on his name, but there's the OK Trends data blog, which is, covers how messages change by race and by age and who writes to who, who doesn't get written to. And so I got a chance to see that firsthand, just how it was manifested, because of my friends that used it, I had a friend of mine who is like a small East Asian guy who's my roommate. Will and he was like, 
oh man, this is, I've never gotten any attention on Cupid ever. I want to try this. And we ran it for him and he almost got no attention still, but he actually got a few messages from it, which was super rare. Whereas I would, I, would, I got a few dozen. And then the way I eventually was convinced that like, oh, this is actually a useful thing is just enough people got so fed up with having bad experiences on OkCupid or on their different dating sites that they made me do little tweaks to it. So for my friend who was my roommate who was a bisexual woman, she was like, I just wanted to only look at, only wanted to look at women. And if I set it for men, I only want to look at men of this very small and narrow capacity, but mostly have it look at women. And so that's just how that tool got made. Tell me a little bit about discovering those biases and figuring out other ways to work around them. Because presumably this site does help to resolve some of those Well, that's the thing, actually. There's a lot of, there's like, one thing that you find out is that most people have pretty strong biases about who they're attracted to, stated or not. I discovered when I started to get multiple, multiple dates a week from just running this random script that I just started filtering out bunches and bunches of, of women. Just like, no, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. I'm not interested anymore. And that really does go with getting a lot of options. And also another thing that you find is that even though there is this triangle of attraction, it's actually not as like kind of high school simple as like, well, Giselle and Tom Brady are at the top because they're the prettiest and they're blonde and he's good at sports. And then like everyone else kind of falls beneath that. There really are these pockets where people that you wouldn't necessarily describe as like mainstream attractive are extremely sought after. So for example, when I ran it for Will, who was a smaller East Asian guy, you know, there were, there were not many women that were breaking down his door, but the ones that did were really interested in meeting Will. So that it does exist that there are people out there that are attracted to you or anybody else that is like around in general and is looking for that person. It's just that it's hard to find each other. So you really do this, so like the, the kind of main discovery is that like someone just has to do the drudgery of just going through and just looking at every single person they can and then someone is going to be interested. So that was one of the big things to find is that someone's out there really, maybe not for everyone, but pretty much for everyone. Like someone will is interested in you, you know? Do you have a lot of women who are using it? Because we have talked a little bit about these very popular people who are getting a ton of attention. (laughs) Does this make it easier for them, more difficult for them? I mean, they're presumably being inundated by messages. Yeah. Does this just spread the love? And also, are women using these tools in the same numbers that men are using these tools? I will say, I think the way it looks at is in terms of the people who get just kind of based on the data that I've seen, get kind of shafted the most from online dating in general are East Asian men and black women, or brown, darker-skinned women and East Asian men. In general is kind of how what I've seen. And so, yes, our user base for EA dating skews heavily to East Asian men and women of color and black and brown women. For specifically, I think we have a lot of people who are kind of isolated, where basically they are setting, like they're running the megaphone, and, but instead of five miles, they're running it for like, a hundred miles. Like I had a guy in Australia, for example, who was just like, how can I reach anyone in like anywhere near these cities because I need to get some dates. So bring it back to what you were saying. Yes, women do use these tools, definitely. A lot of times disproportionately it is women of color. It's also women that have had children. It's women that are a little bit older. That was one of our best ever reviews was on Reddit was someone just being like, I got filtered out. By the because I wasn't in the year hot band and I ran yay dating and there's a bunch of guys I've never seen on, once on the site that have written to me, so there is kind of this effect of really anybody who gets 
particularly for women, because it's such a narrow band you have to fit into to be like the hot, kind of the hottest, most sought after woman. And most 99% of women don't fall into that band. And so you kind of have to just get a little creative and go broader in terms of your searches there. And that said, a lot of dudes are creeps. A lot of dudes are crazy. So there has to be some kind of way of not looking at every single man because that just is even if you, you know, are not whatever, quote unquote, you're the hottest woman or whatever. It's still men are creepy enough that they will still figure out a way to skeeve skeeve you out. So you have to be careful. A lot of women are interested in more defensive oh, products. Yeah. So are there other hacks like this yeah, that you so the, have in the works or, well, the, or the, on the, your radar? Yeah, the one that, so the, the like lasso is for that, which is just like looking for only men that I have liked. Only mm, men that I have liked right. are available. Or the custom lasso where you're like only men that are in this specific desirable characteristic for me. There's also the eye, which is literally just you get in a, a waterfall of everyone's profile picture for all the people that it's ever browsed in your area. And then you just scroll through. And you say, oh, he's cute. Next. And then I'll send him a message. <laughs> because that was what we had, which is like this, this the most passive way it could be, right? It's just browsing everyone's pictures up front. So there's, you know, you get a sense of how somebody looks. And then you just infinite scroll through and say, like, that person's attractive to me. I will send them a message. And that's kind of the most defensive thing that we were able to make. Do you have amazing testimonials? Like, do people credit you with their love matches? I, know, I, I, I should really follow up with this more. I sent an email to people that have used the site when they were doing interviews for Vice. And I did have a few testimonials of people that I don't know if they've gotten married off of it. But there definitely are, particularly there was a, 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 that woman with the, two, with the two children who was extremely happy to go on some dates, which she had in a long time. And there are quite a few fellows who have written saying, like, this is 100% has saved me months of time in my life. So some people are pretty happy with it. Have you told women that you used this hack to be connected to them or to find them? And have they been appreciating of that? Yeah, so that that actually, well, well, funny you should bring that up. So I am engaged to be married. And the woman that I am marrying, I met because of this hack. And uh, the first time we went out on a date... She uh, she was like, you know, it's weird because my roommate feels like she also knows you. Like, I don't know if you've seen her on a Cupid too. On this book, we're over dinner, and I remember just realizing, like, oh no, like, the, and this basically the, the 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 bot I had run was just running, and it usually doesn't go super fast, and it had just been going, 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 and so I usually wouldn't bring it up, like, oh yeah, I'm on a date with you because I ran this robot machine, but I did in that case. And, and uh, I think the way that I usually talk about it is I can't say that she laughed, but I could also say that she didn't leave. Like, so she, it was a thing where I was like, oh, this is w- minus a few points. This is weird. Why did you do this? Why did you tell me about this? But uh, yeah, it, it, it worked out. It worked out in spite of that. But as to the thing of like how people actually use it, that's a good point because there definitely are people that like I watch, you know, generally just to see the traffic. And I definitely see that there are people that are coming on in a repeat way where you, it looks like maybe there's just a lot of kind of swinging from vine to vine, for lack of a better term, of just kind of like, on to the next. And yeah, I, I mean, that's not necessarily the, like the coolest or the, the, sort of the healthiest, most like romantic behavior for dating behavior. But I feel like that's something that people are going to do, you know? Like there's a lot of people I feel like there's there's something to be said, I think, and this, can be contra- this is controversial, for spending some of your early 20s 
just dating around as aggress as hard as you can and just getting that out of your system or figuring that out. So I think that that is kind of the far end of kind of the unhealthy uses of these systems. It's like, how many dates can I can I schedule a date every single day? And I don't have to call these people ever again, but I want to go on these dates. I want to meet these people. So, yeah. Sure. And it's like, well, who, who are we to judge? I know, right? Do, it's like, do, do you? you? Yeah, yeah exactly. Do you, boo-boo? Exactly. Give so. me $2 and then <laughs> get on that ride and yeah. fall in love every day of the week. The Vice Magazine podcast is a production of Vice Media. This issue was produced and edited by Tim Barnes with production assistance from our intern, Taylor Peterson. For more info on the podcast or how to subscribe to the magazine, visit vice.com. And be sure to leave a review for the Vice Magazine podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any podcast app that you use. I'm Ellis Jones, and I'd like to give a special thanks to all the voices you heard on this episode. Elizabeth Renstrom, Naomi Harris, Erica Allen, Abdullah Saeed, and Sharif Kornaldi. We'll be back next month with a 16th annual photo issue. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.